millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where in this episode, we will be looking at The Mummy's Hand from 1940. For the layout of this episode, we are going to start with a look at some of the facts of the film, then at the historical accuracy. Afterwards... There will be a review where I will say what I liked and disliked about it. Finally, if there is anything else worth talking about that does not fit into one of these areas, that will come last. So let us begin our journey across the deserts of Egypt. Let us enter the ancient tomb and creep along its dark corridors. Let us walk into the world of the mummy's hand. The budget for this film was $80,000, which equates to just over $1.7 million now. A much smaller budget than the last Mummy movie, The Mummy 1932. However, the film went over budget by $4,000, which would equate to about $85,000 now. This makes it quite a small budget film, and considering that many of the scenes in the film are taken directly from The Mummy 1932, and considering that the score mostly comes from The Son of Frankenstein, which was released just a year before this, this is immediately quite apparent. In fact, for those who listened to last episode on The Mummy 1932, the entire lengthy flashback scene is reused in this film with only slight variations. In general, contemporary reviews for this film were not particularly inspiring, and modern reviews themselves, while slightly better, are still lukewarm. However, considering the small budget, and considering that the director, Chrissy Cabani, was only given two weeks to shoot the entire film, there is a large part of me that roots for The Mummy's Hand as something of an underdog of the genre. Now let us look at the accuracy of the film. Firstly, early on in the film, we see a man who is given the title the High Priest of Karnak. 
This title is taken directly from The Mummy 1932, where the mummy, Imhotep, was a high priest at Karnak. Karnak is a real place. There were high priests at Karnak, but technically speaking, there was no high priest of Karnak. What is likely being referred to here is a high priest of Amon. Karnak is actually a temple complex and was also the location of the cult centre of Amon. It may seem a bit picky to comment on this, but the slight change from the high priest at Karnak in The Mummy 1932 to the High Priest of Karnak in The Mummy's Hand does have later connotations. The wording of the High Priest of Karnak makes it uncertain whether Karnak is a place or deity, and in The Mummy 1959 they wrongly take this to mean that Karnak is a deity, not a place. This is incorrect and it clearly shows that each Mummy movie is really just borrowing from the film before it rather than doing their own research. Further, in the film, the high priest wears a special medallion to show his position. This is a pure fabrication. During the film, one of the main locations is called the Hill of the Seven Jackals. Again, this is purely a fictional location. Throughout the film, the Egyptologists use the word hieroglyphics. Many real Egyptologists will tell you that this is incorrect. The actual letters or pictures are called hieroglyphs, while the entire text is called hieroglyphic writing. Essentially, hieroglyphics changes an adjective into a noun. On a personal level, I do not tend to correct people when they say hieroglyphics, though I personally do not use this word myself. Interestingly, one of the Egyptologists in the film is called Dr. Petrie. This clearly refers to a real Egyptologist, Flinders Petrie, who was actually alive when his film was released. Flinders Petrie is one of the most important and influential Egyptologists of all time. He dug extensively throughout Egypt and also came up with the concept of relative dating by looking at styles of pottery, which is still used to this day. However, it is probably worth noting that Petrie would have been about 87 when this film came out and had retired about seven years earlier. Not only is the actor used here much too young, but Petrie was also not killed by an ancient mummy that raised from the dead. Now, of course, this is supposed to be a fictional version of Petrie, and raising this point is incredibly pedantic of me. But I do wonder if Petrie ever saw this film and if he got a chuckle out of seeing his portrayal. Hopefully, he was not too annoyed by how bad an archaeologist his film representation was. In fact, he and his team of archaeologists and Egyptologists seemed very happy to use things like dynamite during their excavations. Even in the 1940s, using dynamite during an excavation would have been hugely frowned upon as shock horror. It can cause a lot of damage to the actual artefacts. Do not get me wrong, archaeology by its nature is a destructive profession. It is something that cannot be avoided, but Every measure should be taken to minimise that destruction and there is no place for dynamite. When it comes to the mummy sarcophagus, the iconography on it and the hieroglyphs actually look pretty good. In terms of the iconography, when the sun is represented in this way as it is on the sarcophagus in the film, normally it has connotations of Capri, a god represented as a dung beetle. The hieroglyph for Capri is also present on the sarcophagus and written in a way that can mean to bring about or to rise. In Egyptian religion, Ra, the sun god, was supposed to be born in the east, live an entire lifetime travelling across the sky, and then die and sink into the underworld in the west. He would then travel through the underworld and be born again in the east in an eternal cycle. 
Capri had a large part to play in Ra's rise in the east each day, as this was associated with the dung beetle pushing his ball of dung along the earth. So, although we feel that the filmmakers did not intend this in the slightest, there is even some sound symbolism in having Capri present on the sarcophagus, as the deceased in the film does rise again. Given that the deceased represented on the sarcophagus does not have any crowns or royal beard, it is possibly the sarcophagus of a non-royal as the mummy is supposed to be in the film. However, I am a little confused as to why the sarcophagus has been left standing upright, as to my knowledge this was never done. Further, although it does take several people to remove the lid of the sarcophagus in the film, it does still seem incredibly light considering it is essentially supposed to be a large slab of solid stone. Also, the actual coffin inside the sarcophagus does have a royal beard. Royal beards were a sign of kingship and were only used by the pharaoh, so this is incorrect as Caris, the mummy in the film, was supposed to be a priest. Once again, much like in The Mummy 1932, they talk about the mummy being buried alive. This was never actually done in ancient Egypt and is really more of a, a movie trope, although I will admit it's a fun one. However, Petrie then goes on to say that this is the finest embalming he has ever seen. Embalming involves taking out the internal organs and preserving the body, so needless to say, you can't be both buried alive and embalmed. I also find it quite funny that the Egyptologists are really disappointed that all they find during the excavation is a perfectly preserved mummy with the finest embalming they've ever seen. They also talk about their disappointment in not finding any treasure in the tomb, and yet there are huge vases with absolutely no damage to them. Needless to say, a find like this would be incredible. Outside of the actual sarcophagus and a few other bits, most of the hieroglyphs used in the film are not correct. Often, but not always, there are real hieroglyphs that have just been randomly placed, and as such it is usually pretty easy to see which props have been based on real artefacts. There are one or two points in the film as well where the Egyptologists are reading the hieroglyphs in the wrong direction. Basically, hieroglyphs can be read from left to right, right to left, or top to bottom if they're in columns. It is usually pretty clear which way to read them as you normally read into the faces of the humans and animals, not into the back of their heads as they do in the film. Basically, in terms of accuracy, there is very little of it in this film. And it is generally clear that, for the most part, they have just taken the research done by The Mummy 1932. We will now move on to the review of the film. In this section, I will simply talk about what I liked in the film, what I didn't like, and just give my thoughts overall. As mentioned before, contemporary reviews for this film were not particularly good, and modern ones are only slightly better. In general, your love for this film will likely hinge on whether you like or at least can tolerate the humour found throughout it, as there is a lot of it. Although this film is still horror, the tone is much less serious than The Mummy 1932. For me personally, I found the humour to be a little hit and miss, though there was one character who genuinely did make me laugh, which is often unusual for a film of this age. This character was a magician named Slovani. His part is... A little overacted, but some of the jokes do land. For instance, there is a part where he is searching his pockets looking for a contract, and as he is a magician, he keeps pulling out odd items, like huge playing cards, light bulbs, and doves, etc. This is incredibly silly, but I actually did find it quite funny, and I thought the timing was pretty good. 
One thing that can be said to the humours is it did add a lot more colour to the characters when compared to The Mummy 1932. In fact, in general, I find the characters in this film to be much more likeable. This is also the first Mummy movie to use the idea of tanner leaves. Now, tanner leaves are not real. They are a fictional thing, but they are also a trope I quite enjoy. Basically, the tanner leaves are what allows the mummy to remain alive and also can give the mummy his power. I'm not really sure why I like the trope, but I've, it's always made me smile. As mentioned earlier, large sections of this film, including 95% of the flashback uh, scene, are taken directly from The Mummy 1932. One small difference is that whilst the box in An Axe of the Moon's Tomb in The Mummy 1932 contained the scroll of Thoth, in this one, the box contains the tanner leaves needed to bring the mummy back to life. I personally feel that this is a really good way of editing stock footage, and as already mentioned, considering the film has a much smaller budget and time constraints whilst filming, I am able to be a little forgiving when it comes to the use of stock footage and things like that. In fact, I would actually argue that a small budget in films like this can actually add an inadvertent charm. For instance, in one scene, there is a bar fight which is hilariously bad. At one point, a prop chair breaks before it hits its target. And in another, someone gets thrown into a wall which does not just wobble, it actually moves backwards several inches. You could argue that these things take away from the immersion of the film, but ultimately, this is a film from 1940, and I do not feel that people are watching these films now for the original reason they were made. In terms of the actual mummy, I think it looks pretty good, although I do find it funny that the mummy is clearly wearing shoes underneath the bandages. Much like with The Mummy 1932, there has clearly been a lot of effort put into the makeup used. In fact, whether it be Boris Karloff from The Mummy 1932 or Tom Tyler from this film, I feel quite sorry for both men as I know that the makeup process took hours and hours to complete. In fact, for The Mummy 1932, Boris Karloff actually said it was the worst experience of makeup he'd ever had. Unlike The Mummy 1932, this mummy is basically just a brainless servant rather than the living dead that has managed to integrate into society. Personally, I like both mummies, but I do feel that Boris Karloff's version is a little bit better. In terms of the plot, it is admittedly a bit of a mess. The actual plot is pretty standard. The heroes in the film at least have clear motives for their goals. They want to find the long-lost tomb of Princess Ananka. However, the motives for the villains seem to be a little bit all over the place. At first, they just want to stop the heroes from finding the tomb. But then at one random point, they decide to kidnap the heroine in the film and with the wish to make her immortal. No real reason is given for this and it has the feeling that it's just been kind of shoehorned in to tick a box. In general, I am willing to forgive a lot in these old mummy movies, but I do feel that the plot here is very nonsensical and is easily the weakest part of the film. Now, if you listened to last episode, you may remember that, although I did not find The Mummy 1932 scary, there were certain elements that were genuinely creepy and one or two parts that made the hairs on the back of my neck prickle. There is none of that in this film. There was not a single scene in this film that made me feel creeped out or scared. I feel that this is largely due to the film's age, although I find it hard to believe that even contemporary audiences would have found this one particularly scary. Although this film is a horror, 
In a way, it is almost better to view it as an action comedy, which subjectively it does achieve. Overall, despite its flaws, I do feel that this film has enough charm and enough likeable characters for me to enjoy it. Technically speaking, it is not as good as The Mummy 1932, although I did find that I was entertained throughout and I felt that the film moved along much more smoothly. In total, the film is 70 minutes long and I would argue it felt much shorter than that. So, despite its flaws, I do like The Mummy's Hand and I think if I had a choice I would rather watch this one than The Mummy 1932. Although, I still do hold that technically The Mummy 1932 is a better film. Thank you very much for listening and please join me next time when we will be looking at this film's first direct sequel, The Mummy's Tomb.